Guys, if you just look at one, it crumbles. <laughs> it gives up on life. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Cosmic Cast, brought to you from the Earth and Solar System team from the University of Manchester. As per usual, we've got Marissa Lowe over here. Hello. <laughs> no, here. Tom Hello. Harvey is over here. Hello. Rick Baber here is down here somewhere. Hello. And joining us from the periphery of Milton Keynes is uh, Ashley King. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Not too bad. So you're based at the Open University. Uh, yes, yeah, I am. And you've been there quite recently, haven't you? I think. Uh, yeah. Been a few months now. So I joined, uh, it was the 1st of October, I joined the Open University. So it's coming up to six months. Yeah, six months in April, I guess. Mm-hmm. And are you working from home now? Presumably. I am very much working from home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they shut the campus. Uh, so they didn't. They, so they told us to go and work from home for a few days. And then progressively, they've been, they shut the campus down and they've shut the labs and everything completely yeah. now. So, yeah. yeah. So stuck yeah. at home for the who knows how long. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so we thought we'd get you on because you've done a lot of work on chondrites and that's not really something that we've touched on particularly here on the Cosmic Cast. It'd be great to get some of your views uh, about chondrites. So how, how long have you worked, been working on chondrites? Is that what you did for your PhD as well? It's not, no. I, uh, so my PhD was, oh, here comes the cat, um, my PhD was looking at pre-solar grains. Oh, okay, because that was at Manchester, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Were so you working with Ian Lyon then? With Ian Lyon, yeah. So I, I did my undergraduate in Manchester, uh, and I did my PhD in Manchester working, working with Ian Lyon, uh, looking at uh, pre-solar silicon carbide grains. Mm. And I did, I actually, my first postdoc was in Chicago, uh, and I was, again, working on pre-solar grains and building new instruments for kind of studying these things. So these pre-solar grains are these tiny, um, I don't know if you've talked about pre-solar grains at all. Not at all, really, yeah. So these are, you know, we always talk about meteorites as being the oldest thing that we can get. Um, you know, they're four and a half billion years, just over four and a half billion years old. And the, the pre-solar grains are the dust that formed in stars um, before the solar system. Um, so they're 4.56 plus yeah. some age and um so these are tiny little things that condensed out around stars and they got swept up into our solar system um most of those got destroyed and processed but in some of the the most pristine meteorites you actually can extract these tiny little grains um, out how big are they, they? Are, yeah so they're uh, sort of you're looking at micron size to, to sub micron so they get yeah. down to sort of 100 nanometers or whatever so they're, they're really interesting samples because they tell us a lot about star formation and how nucleosynthesis, um, how, how things are made in stars. And they tell us a little bit about the materials in which the solar system was, was forming from. Um, but they're very, very small, so you don't have much material to play with when you want to analyze them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I was doing, uh, using the Tofsims in Manchester um, and then building a, uh, a resonant ionization mass spectrometer out in Chicago to study these things so we can get isotope compositions. Um, yeah, so that's what I did for a bit, and then I came back. I was in postdoc at Manchester for a year or so, and then I moved down to the Natural History Museum, and that's where my love of chondrites um, started. So I sort of trained as a geologist and went more towards kind of, I guess, physics, um, mm-hmm. uh, at least astrophysics, and then 
yeah, sometimes you have to take a job where there's a, when there's a job going, so I end yeah. up working on chondrites. Yeah. But I do not regret it at all. I love mm. chondrites. Yeah. Mm. Putting the cap down. Because <laughs> you've worked on a, a huge variety of different chondrites. So I guess for the audience may not be too familiar, chondrites are divided into a whole bunch of different subtypes. So you've got things like CM, CI, CB. Yeah, so we have, uh, so chondrites have, uh, there are kind of three main groups of chondrites. Mm. So, so chondrites are the, the meteorites that come from the small objects, the smaller asteroids in, in the solar system. So the things that didn't really get extensively processed. Um, and so we have ordinary chondrites, which uh, what, what most of the meteorite collection are made of. So about 90% of all the meteorites are, are ordinary chondrites. And these are coming from um, uh, what we call S-type or stony-type asteroids. Um, so these are predominantly found in the kind of inner regions of the, the main asteroid belt. Mm. Uh, we also have N-type chondrites, which are much rarer. Um, and these are really interesting samples because they sort of isotopically and a little bit chemically, they match what we think the building blocks for the Earth and the other terrestrial planets might mm. have been. And, and there are some links between N-type chondrites and Mercury. So we think these are probably formed really close in um, in the inner parts of the solar system. Mm -hmm. And then we have the carbonaceous chondrites. Uh, <laughs> a cat is a nightmare. I say they've been sleeping like all week and uh, <laughs> the time they've decided to get up. Um, so yeah, the carbonaceous chondrites. Um, uh, so these again are coming from smaller bodies, but probably uh, the C-type asteroids, um, which are C for carbonaceous. Yeah. So about 80% of all the asteroids are C-types. Um, and the, these are the ones that are full of the volatiles and full of water. Yeah, so we think they formed further away um, um, at greater distances from the sun. So you've got colder temperatures, you've got things like ices and, and organics and other volatile species there in those materials that you accrete from. Um, and then within the carbonaceous chondrites, there are currently, uh, depends on who you talk to, but there are, there are about eight different types of carbonaceous chondrite. Um, and they all have slightly different um, isotopic compositions, slightly different mineralogy. And this is telling us a little bit about differences in maybe the materials that they accreted from. So maybe they're sampling different parts of the early solar system and also some of the processes that were going on on those parent bodies. So some of them have been aqueously altered. Um, some have undergone thermal metamorphism. Um, some of them have undergone both processes and they're kind of overprinting each other. Um, so yeah, they're really um, very complex rocks. They tend to have um, sort of chondrules uh, mm -hmm. So these are these little glassy droplets that we think formed in the nebula. Uh, they have CAIs, these calcium aluminium inclusions. So these are the really mm -hmm. early condensates um, that we have. And then they have, they range from sort of 50% to getting up to, well, 100% nearly matrix, mm -hmm. a really fine grained matrix. And mm -hmm. um, so it goes back a little bit like the pre-solar grains that this, this is really sort of sub-micron grain sizes. So it's really difficult to, to study. Um, I was going to say the, the, the matrix, isn't it all sort of fine grain phyllosilicates and a lot of water bearing minerals and things? So, yeah, so it depends on what type of carbonaceous chondrite you're looking at. So, um, so things like CM and CI uh, carbonaceous chondrites, these are equally altered meteorites. And so the matrix is, is pretty much just phyllosilicates mm -hmm. um, plus some oxides and some sulfides and things. And you see different alterations of the chondrules and the CAIs. Um, but something like a, a CO, CV, you're looking more at um, olivines and pyroxenes. 
right. amorphous silicates, which are really interesting because we think the amorphous silicates probably formed um, kind of, there's lots of argument about whether they are condensates from the interstellar nebula, whether they're condensates within the, within the nebula itself, but they're probably likely to be some of the most pristine kind of uh, mm-hmm. materials that we can get from our solar system. So. Mm-hmm. And I guess then understanding these carbonaceous chondrites, then I suppose are important for understanding water fluxes to the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the big things. Um, so most of my work has been looking at carbonaceous chondrites mm-hmm. and in particular looking at the, um, the ones that have got water in, so the mm-hmm. CM, CI chondrites. And uh, so for a long time, people, uh, you know, so when we think of how the solar system formed, um, often, uh, you know, we know we have water, liquid water on Earth, and there's evidence for there having been water on the Moon and Mars. Um, Venus probably had lots of water on it at some point. Yeah. Um, and also in Mercury, we see evidence for water. So, oh, really? On Mercury as well? I didn't realise Yeah, that. they see in some of those shaded craters, um, they find ices. Mm, um, cool. So... So what we know is that water existed in the inner solar system, but uh, when the, these terrestrial planets were forming, the temperatures were too high really to have volatiles in the disk. So it's likely you have to bring those volatiles from somewhere else. Uh, and that other place where we know there's lots of volatiles is the outer solar system. Yeah. So, so one of the big ideas is that these carbonaceous asteroids are a way of, of bringing those volatiles um, to, to places like the Earth and to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so and I think... For a long time, people thought comets were the main um, kind yeah. of way to do that because obviously these are really icy bodies with some dust. Yeah. And I think things like uh, uh, the Rosetta mission to 67P and we're starting to get more information about the composition of the water on comets and things, and it doesn't quite match what we see here on, on Earth. So it's led to, to people going back towards the idea of carbonaceous asteroids being the way to do this. Um, but I think, you know, well, it, it could be a bit of both. I mean, it could be, you could have comets and carbonaceous asteroids yeah, bringing, sure. bringing this stuff. So, but yeah, that's why we're really interested in, in, these, in these things is the, this delivery of volatiles. So that's, so it's water, it's also organics. Mm. Um, so they contain, so it's really interesting, carbonaceous chondrites, we, they have the name carbonaceous. Um, if you ever, I, I, I guess you've probably seen some of these things, but they're very, very dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly something like a CI chondrite, a fresh CI chondrite, really black. Um, so, but actually they only contain a few percent carbon um, in there. So it's actually surprisingly low, um, the amount right. of carbon that you find. So something like, tag, there are a few unusual, Tagish Lake, I think is about 5.8% carbon. So where's this carbon coming from? Is it um, sort of primordial from resulting from pre-existing supernovae? So some, of it's in, so some of it's definitely in pre-solar grains. So, mm-hmm. um, so you have things like silicon carbide and graphite yeah. are common things. Some of it's in organics. Um, and one of the big questions is, uh, what kind of fraction of the organics are interstellar in origin? Uh, what mm-hmm. fraction were formed within the solar nebula itself? Are we talking uh, amino acids here? Or? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, so some of it, so the things like, yeah, so we split the organics up into uh, what we call insoluble organic matter and soluble organic matter. And so the insoluble is, is extracted out of the meteorite um, by uh, basically dissolving away most of the silicate material mm-hmm. using, using acids. And you kind of get left with this black, tarry uh, substance, sticky substance, which is kind of a mixture of very, uh, just, uh, just, just a, yeah, it's just carbon <laughs> yeah. in lots of very poorly ordered forms. Uh, and then you have soluble organics, which you can extract out using kind of hot solutions and things. And that's things like amino acids and things are in there. So, so you get both yeah. of those. And so one of the big questions is, is, how did those things form? Where did they form? 
-hmm. and also how are they processed on those parent bodies uh, mm -hmm. particularly things like aqueous alteration is interesting because it can it can redistribute organics you know organics that were created into the parent body may have been moved around the parent body and modified uh, and yeah. that changes isotopic signatures and, and chemical signatures yeah um, I, I guess it's fascinating really because i suppose these organics are these ultimately what then goes on to be the building blocks for life on earth yeah yeah i mean everything that you would think of as a as the kind of starting point so we, we always have to be careful that we don't think carbonaceous chondrites bought life mm -hmm. but certainly those kind of building blocks those mm -hmm. things that have to go together yeah um uh, yeah we're probably in and we're in these samples and then yeah. uh, and people do lots of kind of experiments with impacts and things of these mm -hmm. things and find that uh, organics are surprisingly tolerant to surviving impacts into you know mm -hmm. if you wanted to fire a big carbonaceous asteroid into the early earth chances are some of those organics would survive yeah that's really and potentially cool. create new organics as well on the earth mm -hmm. Yeah, aren't there a couple of PhD students from like the OU who are looking at um, survivability of? Um, yes, yeah. Uh, so there's Zoe Morland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't think who else is doing that. But yes, yeah, so she's looking specifically. Yeah, she's doing like impact experiments with organics. Um, I think a lot of her. I want to speak for her project. I think a lot of it's related to Phobos. Wow. And the transfer. So I think she's really interested in the potential transfer of organics between um mars and phobos right okay. when mmx goes and can, can you get stuff off of mars onto phobos and can you yeah. do the, the other way yeah. so phobos is a really interesting thing because it's um so it's a moon around mars yeah um but from its from its spectral properties so so basically how the light is bouncing back off of it it's very very dark um it looks an awful lot like carbonaceous asteroids mm -hmm. so it's um, a capture so that, moon then probably or yeah. well so this is one of the big questions and for the i don't know if you've talked about the mmx mission which no is not the, at all the japanese yeah. mission which is going to go i can't remember the dates off the top of my head but it's um, a sample return mission to phobos mm -hmm. um, so really exciting and mm. um so one of the big questions they want to address is whether phobos is a captured carbonaceous asteroid or whether it was made through um, impact onto into Mars, a little bit like our own moon. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm. so I, I lead. I hope that it's a carbonaceous asteroid type of material. But I mean, um, yeah, we'll I mean that would be pretty cool. Yeah, to, to, to get yeah. direct yeah. sampling or something like that. Yeah, I mean, any time we get samples of anything from the solar system, um, I don't, I don't. You know, it's really rare. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if people quite appreciate how little material we have directly sampled yeah, yeah. There's, there was the loon at uh, the loon the moon uh lunar samples um and we have uh sort of genesis we collected the solar wind hayabusa went to one of these s-type asteroids that i was talking about um and then we've got uh hayabusa 2 which is due back at the end of this year and mm -hmm. that's going to bring back carbonaceous asteroid material and then the cyrus rex is going to come back 2023 um, and that's also gone to a carbonaceous asteroid. So that's pretty, that's it, isn't it? I haven't missed anything. I think that's it, yeah. I think so that's it's it. Be, so it's going to be a busy time then when all this comes back. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, it's really exciting. It's, um, yeah. So, I, uh, so I, I was in Japan when Hayabusa 2 launched. Oh, cool. Um, so I wasn't actually at the launch site because um, it's on an island. I think it's north of Japan somewhere. But I was at the... Uh, uh, the Hibusa and the, the NIPR, which is the Japanese Antarctic program, mm -hmm. have a, like an annual meeting. Um, and as part of that, they have a meteorite session. So I, I was there for, for that and for a Hayabusa meeting. And um, 
So I was in the room with all the scientists as we sat and watched it um, on the big screen, watching this thing go off. So that's really exciting. And so it's coming back um, mm -hmm. December this year. So yeah, we'll get some samples to play with. So it's kind of a... Oh, so you're going to actually be able to get some of those samples? Uh, so I am not on the on the team. On the So they will mm -hmm. have a preliminary examination team. Um, so when they come back, I think they're going to stay in Japan probably for at least the first six months. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll do all their kind of first wave of, of analysis to work out what they've got. Uh, and then after that, there will be a call for people to apply for those samples. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, yeah, lots of my work for the last few years has been geared towards understanding the kind of formation and history of carbonaceous chondrites yeah. and carbonaceous asteroids. Uh, and lots of that's been in preparation for being able to look at these samples that come back and go, do they look like what we see in the meteorite record or do we have something completely different? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the big issue we have with, with carbonaceous chondrites is that they are, because they're so volatile rich, they're really friable. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about things like ordinary chondrites, enstite chondrites, or, or even bits of Martian meteorites or lunar meteorites, they're, they're proper kind of uh, cohesive rocks. Um, and so when they get knocked off a planet off of, a, of an asteroid, they, they tend to stay as rocks yeah. and, you know, and they'll come through the atmosphere and they'll stay quite big and, and they'll sit on the Earth's surface and they, mm. they will weather, but not as quickly as a, as a carbonaceous thing. So, so carbonaceous stuff will, is really friable. It just breaks yeah. up. Um, right. So the chances of it kind of coming through space and coming through the atmosphere, mm. surviving that, landing on the Earth, and then sitting there for potentially millions of years uh, are much lower. Mm. And so what it means is that the record that we have from carbonaceous chondrites is probably very biased. Mm. We're probably not seeing everything that's out there. So. Is that probably just the largest impacts then that are able to preserve lumps of, of, of bigger stuff then? Yeah, so it depends on what, the, what was... We don't know very much about what the parent bodies are, really. Mm -hmm. um, so we know there's lots of carbonaceous asteroids out there, but we don't know very much about their kind of physical structure and, and yeah. properties. And so this is one of the reasons for, for the OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa 2 missions, was to go and understand... Mm -hmm. you know, you know, we know what we know from the, from the meteorite record, but when we actually go and visit these things, what do they look like? And, um, and so it turns out that... Uh, so both Rugu, which is where Hayabusa 2 is... Um, uh, Bennu, where Osiris-Rex is, are both what we call rubble pile mm -hmm. asteroids. Um, and so these are objects that were probably uh, accreted as larger sort of bodies or planetesimals uh, and then were broken up by an impact um, and then have kind of re-accreted back together as these kind of loose aggregates of, mm -hmm. of really porous rocks. So, uh, uh, Sorry, just ask, so when yeah. you say they were the part of a larger body, we're talking still not large enough to differentiate. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's possible that there were things like, so Ceres, which is actually the largest asteroid. Um, so it's, it's a series, 900 kilometers or so in diameter. Mm -hmm. Sorry, like that. Um, so Ceres is a C-type asteroid. And so that's kind of, um, and we think that may have differentiated and separated like a kind of small planet. But, mm. but there may have been other bodies like Ceres in the early solar system that were broken up into smaller bodies that mm. have then been broken up into these rubble piles. And so mm -hmm. you end up with asteroid families and things, but, um, mm -hmm. but you're looking at reflectance spectra, which are very, very dark mm. um, and tend to have very, like they, they usually they're very, very flat, very, very dark. They don't have any spectral features in them whatsoever. And so you're just comparing slight differences in the slope to link mm -hmm. things. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's really hard. So yeah, so this is one of the big reasons that we need to send space missions to do this is because we can actually 
take a picture and look at what these these look yeah. like and then if we can bring back the samples we can actually tie that to the spectral stuff mm. i guess it's going to be the chemistry that really is the nail to identifying yeah. parent bodies yeah 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 uh, and even then i think it's difficult um mm -hmm. What sorts of key components, or I guess minerals, are you particularly looking at when you look at these these chondrites? So, in the in the aqueously altered um, meteorites, uh, I'm mainly looking at phyllosilicates. So, like kind of, uh, so these are silicate minerals with uh, OH and H2O bonds. So, so something probably so these things probably accreted as silicate dust, and there was probably a significant amount of ice. In the outer solar system, um, and they probably accreted early enough that they had uh, aluminium twenty-six, which is radioactive. And so, as that is decaying away, it generates just enough heat to uh, actually melt those ices. And so, as you've got liquid, probably liquid water, but you probably had things like ammonia ice and CO two ices as, as well out there. Um, and so, they react with the with the olivine, uh, the silicate dust, which is mainly kind of olivine and pyroxene. Um, and so when you do that, you start making phyllosilicates, which is essentially silicates with an OHH2O bond. And, and they come in all sorts of, uh, phyllosilicates come in all sorts of weird and wonderful varieties. Um, mm. uh, and some of the others, so see chondrites tend to contain uh, what we call smectite type clays. Um, so these are swelling clays. Um, so these are things with H2O bonds on them. Yeah, I remember, I remember smectite from undergrad field geology. I think we were somewhere, mm -hmm. I can't where we were, but they encouraged to put lumps on our tongue and it would just stick to your tongue. Yeah, it's, really, so, it's, guess, so it's the stuff, um, smectite clays, it's the stuff you get in cat litter. Right, okay, <laughs> excellent. It's very similar. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. Is that you encouraged to put on your tongue, John? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I've been slightly, uh, not really worried, but... Um, because of everybody's uh, buying all the, so if you go to a supermarket at the moment, there's no cat food or anything. Yes, no, I know. Um, yes, yeah, real concern. But I, I live. There's a Fuller's Earth. So Fuller's Earth is a kind of is a is a, a Montmorillonite, which is one of these swelling clays. So mm -hmm. there's a Fuller's Earth, an old Fuller's Earth mine in the woods, not far from here. So I can go and mine that if I get completely stuck. <laughs> That's a, my backup plan. Probably less but, good um, for cat food though. <laughs> yeah, less good for cat food. Yeah, yeah. Although cat food is mainly ash and stuff, isn't it? I think if you actually read the labels. Um, but anyway, so the differences in the clays kind of tell us a little bit about the conditions, um, the chemical conditions, and, and maybe the temperatures and things that okay. these parent bodies were experiencing. So. Okay. so is that largely what these different subdivisions represent, slightly different formational conditions and different yeah, temperatures? Yeah, so I think, so if you were, yeah, so I think you're looking at things that formed in different places within the solar system. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's likely that so some of these are kind of anhydrous carbonaceous meteorites so they don't really have very much water in them okay. um, they don't have spiders okay so something like a co or cv chondrite right probably comes from a body i reckon uh, accreted around the snow line um but we don't know where the snow line was within the early solar system mm -hmm. and the snow line almost certainly wasn't a fixed location mm -hmm. um so it probably migrated as over time so but i suspect these these there's you know, there's, if you look at the meteorites, it looks like that the water rock ratio was, was very, very low mm. um, in those samples. So they're probably forming, I don't know, three, four AU um, inside the snow line. Whereas something like a CI chondrite uh, is 100% is near enough, 100% matrix. Mm. Um, it doesn't really have any chondrules and CAIs mm. in it. Yeah. So there's a big argument about whether that's because they've all just been completely altered and you don't see them anymore or whether they were ever there. Mm. Um, 
uh, and and all of that all of the matrix is phyllosilicates. Okay. So they probably I think what's likely is that they formed much further out. So so possibly even beyond sort of ten astronomical units. So I think we have maybe samples from you know looking towards the Kuiper Belt region, mm -hmm. um, and and there just weren't very many condors and CAIs around, and you accreted yeah. lots and lots of ice. Um, so you had a very high water rock ratio, mm -hmm. um, and so that's why you ended up with those types of samples. So yeah, so I think it's it's what it's, it's the materials they accreted, and also where they accreted tells us a little bit about the, mm -hmm. how they uh, tells us how they underwent different kind of uh, alteration histories. Yeah, I guess the eyes are quite interesting because I suppose they're almost like a sort of a geological standard, aren't they? I guess most geochemical data for the moon and the Earth and stuff are all. Uh, normally ratio to CI chondrites. Yeah, so they're, they're absolutely quite... amazing. Um, so they are my favourites. Um, mm. So so the CIs are, uh, there are five CI chondrites. So mm. people always talk about the Martian meteorites and the lunar meteorites being really rare. Mm -hmm. There's something like 200 Martians, 200 yeah. lunars. Something like that, yeah. I don't, yeah. So, um, and they're, I couldn't, I can't remember what prices they get sold for. Um, but um People get very excited by Martians and Lunars, but there are five CI chondrites, and uh, they're all falls. Uh, right. And the reason they're all falls is because they are. So, if you ever hold one, or even it's if you just look at one, it crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> it gives up on life. They're so soft. So the chance of it actually surviving through the atmosphere is right. you know, really remote. So that's part of the reason we don't have mm -hmm. very much. And then they're all falls. So if if one of these was to, to sit in your garden and not be found, it would be gone within. Mm -hmm months if not a year I, I suspect mm -hmm. it wouldn't hang around for very long um, they're really volatile rich they react with the atmosphere mm -hmm. and so uh, but yeah but so there are these amazing things and they're, they're all matrix that matrix is completely um, altered to find silicates uh, they probably came from right at the edge of the solar system um, so they are the most aqueously altered samples that we have but chemically they are uh, basically identical to the composition of the solar photosphere um, right which is, okay which is which is why everything is normalized to to them when we think of the chemistry so um so basically the sun is 99 percent the mass of the whole solar system mm -hmm. so we yep. take the you know the composition of the sun is the composition of the nebula at time zero um and everything else has kind of been its chemistry has been changed to some extent by the processes that have affected it ci chondrites have remained the same um, mm -hmm. uh, apart from volatiles that don't match very well but, um, but yeah. other than that everything else is, is is the same as the photosphere which is incredible really because they're so modified from whatever their original um state was so so yes yeah, so everything everybody normalizes to ci chondrite um, would you mind talking us through what all of these um names like ci cm co cv oh yeah of course so yeah yeah so um so they all get given uh so so these so c's for carbonaceous and then the second letter is for the type specimen. Um, so CI, the I stands for Ravuna, which is the type specimen for the CI chondrites. And so it's kind of, we take the properties of Ravuna and anything else that looks similar gets like linked or put into the same group. Um, M is for Megay. Um, so that fell in the Ukraine a long, I can't remember the exact year, but it was a long time ago. Um, so it's an interesting one because everybody, so the most famous CM chondrite is actually Murchison. Um, which fell in Australia in 1969 and it's a big CM chondrite and um, it's probably one of the best studied meteorites um, because it was one of the first meteorites where people could really identify the phyllosilicates and also organic materials. Uh, yeah, OCO, O is for Ornam, so that's France I think that one fell in. 
Um, v is for Vigoranu. So they all get named after kind of the type yeah. specimen. Yeah. It's not necessarily the biggest, um, it's just the one that was, it's a yeah. kind of historical um, thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, and Y is after Yamoto, the CYs, yes. which is the newest group of the Carbonaceous Chondrites. <laughs> So this is a group that you've proposed then? <laughs> yes, this is my group, yeah. Well, we were going to call them, so it was me and Sarah Russell, who I, who yeah. I, used, who I still work with, uh, who, who used, to be, uh, used to be my boss, and um, she wanted to call them the King Russell group. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would have gone down well. And um, it turns out that somebody actually had proposed linking these meteorites together before and referred to them as the CYs and the Yamato. Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting, so that uh, Yamato is the, is the place um, it's the area in Antarctica where they were collected by the Japanese yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, missions. So, so yeah, so we, uh, last year, we proposed, a, we decided to confuse things even more and suggested that there, were, there might be another carbonaceous um, chondrite group called the CYs. Um, so they're really interesting because they're, they're really similar. So for a long time, they were, th so they're, they're like CI chondrites. Um, in that there's mainly matrix uh, and they're really fine. They were really phyllosilicate rich. But they underwent uh, after the aqueous alteration. They underwent thermal metamorphism, uh, and we're starting to find more and more of these meteorites that had both of these processes going on. Mm -hmm. And so, for a long time, because you have the, the, the sorry the thermal metamorphism kind of overprints the aqueous alteration, it's very difficult to pull those two processes apart. Mm -hmm. um, so people found these in the late 80s, I think 1980s, um, and there was only about two or three of them. And they kind of went, well, they're a bit unusual, but chemically they kind of look a bit like a CI chondrite. They don't seem to have many chondrules or CAIs. And their oxygen isotopes are similar. They're not the same, they're shifted, but they're very similar to the CI chondrites. And so they got kind of lumped in as, so if you go on the, on the meteoritical bulletin and, mm -hmm. and search for them, they'll come up as CI chondrites and, and it will say there are nine CI chondrites. Mm -hmm. But there are actually, there are five. But we got these four Antarctic ones um, and had a look at them. And they're similar to CIs, but they're not CI chondrites. And there are mm -hmm. lots of differences in there. Um, and they've been aquously altered and very metamorphosed. And so we proposed calling them a, a, a new group. Um, because yes. since the late 1980s, we now, I think we're up to, I reckon there's maybe 10 or so that we think probably are, fall into this CY chondrite group. Oh, right. Okay. We reckon. Yeah. So I trawl through the, through the, uh, through the databases yeah. and pick out things with unusual oxygen isotopes is normally the, the mm -hmm. first thing. Um, so we're kind of looking at, uh, yeah, we're kind of studying all of these things to try and work out, you know, mm -hmm. which ones are CYs, if they're not CYs, are they something else? Because, you know, sometimes we do have just unusual meteorites that don't yeah. match anything else. Mm -hmm. There so seem to be, oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, so do, do you think they represent um, a discrete parent body or do you think it's more a case that as more finds are collected and as more geochemical analyses are done, we'll just find there's like a, a continual spectrum of different you know, thermal ah, conditions and Yeah, that is interesting. So that's, so I personally think they are a different parent body. Um, there are some things in there that are very, very sulfide rich. Mm -hmm. um, really, there's a lot of sulfur in there. Um, so I think there are some things in there that suggest that they, they are a separate parent body from the CIs. I suspect they formed in a similar region, yeah, um, um, but not quite exactly the same. But it is true that there are, um, we often think of carb each carbonaceous chondrite group um, kind of traditionally has been thought of as coming from a single parent body. Mm -hmm. So the COs all come from one parent body, the CVs all come from, well, the CVs all come from a parent body, but... Um, but there it is possible, and there are people who believe that actually you've only got um, you've either got 
so I, I personally think the CMs come from multiple parent bodies. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are differences between some of them um, that suggest that they can't all be from the same. Um, and I think the CYs come from something different from the from the CIs. To me, it makes sense that you have lots of different parent bodies. There are, there are I can't remember the exact number of asteroids. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of asteroids out there. Is it 60? No, 60,000 meteorites. I can't remember the number anyway. But anyway, there are lots of asteroids. There's no reason why everything should come from the same yeah. parent body. Um, but there are things like, um, so CO, CM chondrites are interesting. People have argued for a long time that they might be a single parent body. Um, so COs tend to be anhydrous and CMs are equously altered. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at their oxygen isotopic compositions, they sit on the same, they kind of had the same, they're different, but they're shifted in a kind of systematic way that suggests that the differences are related to how altered they are, not necessarily what starting materials were. So, mm -hmm. so the argument is that they, you had a parent body that uh, accreted and was CO-like, and some of that parent body was aquously altered, and other regions weren't aquously altered because it didn't accrete ice or it was warm or whatever. Um, and so they actually all come from a single um, parent body. Um, so I guess, do you think, what's the future for the study of carbonaceous chondrites? And I suppose it's all these uh, new mission returns that are coming our way. Yeah, so I think, uh, so we're going to get samples some from Hayabusa 2 and from Osiris-Rex. And so who knows exactly what those things are going to look like. Um, so another reason we wrote the CY paper was because uh, the spectra um, from the CY meteorites that we measure in the laboratory is very, very similar to the spectra from the surface of, of asteroid rug. Um, and so I, I've kind of, one of the things I've been doing for the last few years is kind of trying to promote the idea that actually I think you can have a parent body that was aquously altered and you generated lots of phyllosilicates, but the surfaces of those parent bodies might be dehydrated. They might have undergone thermal metamorphism um, either through impacts. Um, we know impacts of, can happen regularly throughout the solar system history. Um, but also solar radiation. If you get things that get close to the sun, you can actually kind of heat and cook cook the surface. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so we've kind of been arguing that maybe the CYs are going to be good analogs for the stuff that we get back from Rugu. Um, and there's evidence that the surface of Rugu is dehydrated. There was a bit of evidence before it, before the mission got there, and now it's arrived. I think. I mean, we don't know until we get the samples back, but it looks yeah. it looks that way. Um, and then I think the other interesting thing we always get new carbonaceous chondrite falls and we find uh, get unusual samples um so tagish lake is a really interesting start i can't remember tagish lake 1999 tagish lake fell in canada that's kind of special in its own way it's a little bit like a cm it's a little bit like a ci so we, we get sometimes we get samples that are just different and interesting um, tagish lake we think again came from way out at the edge of the solar system and we have some evidence for, for that so it's kind of like uh, natural sample return so yeah. you know it's really difficult we can't send something to the Kuiper belt to bring back samples realistically yeah. but every now and again we might get a meteorite that tells us about conditions out there yeah that's uh, awesome. and then the other thing that i am really interested in it again comes back to kind of trying to find um new types of carbonaceous chondrites or uh, it's it's looking for um bits of carbonaceous chondrites within the ordinary chondrites and the entotype chondrites so if you've got all these, and we know some, uh, so the HED meteorites, um, the Howardites and the Eucalyptus yes. um, things, and the Diogenites on Vesta have lots of carbonaceous clasts. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got this massive influx of, of material from the outer solar system towards the inner solar system, that's going to impact into the surfaces of these things. 
And so I think this is, um, and we know carbonaceous things exist in these in these samples, but I don't think people have ever sort of systematically gone and looked at what all these different classes are. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think this is another way of us being able to get hold of really volatile, rich, fragile stuff from the outer solar system without having to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so we're going to start looking at those in a kind of more systematic way. Mm. That's really cool. So thanks very much so far, Ashley. Mm -hmm. uh, a question that we ask all of our guests as the last thing um, is if you could be doing something else, um, either in science or outside of science, what would you want to do? Oh, that is a horrible question. Uh, <laughs> that is, no, it's a really good question as well. Um, so I, uh, so I, I worked at the Natural History Museum for a very long time. Um, and obviously being a museum kind of uh, public engagement is a very big thing. Mm. Uh, and so, and I love going and talking to people and giving talks and showing, like going into schools and showing kids meteorites mm. is just really fun. Mm. Um, you can have like, you know, like you all know that like, working in science is, it, like, we're really lucky to work in science, but it's also, it can be rubbish sometimes. And you can definitely have like stuff doesn't work or you have weeks where you don't talk to anybody or see anybody or um, everybody's kind of in their own little world sometimes in, in science. Uh, but actually going and showing a whole load of school children, talking to school children about bits of rock from space is like awesome. So I think mm -hmm. I don't think I'd want to be a teacher, but I would quite enjoy doing some sort of engagement -y type, uh, you know, um, Science yeah. communicator, basically. Science communicating, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I would, I would enjoy that a lot. Yeah, no, you did a good job with it today. So, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, I also love being in a lab. I love measuring stuff. Um, so, <laughs> so I happily go and work in a lab, and I go to Diamond to the synchrotron a lot and stuff. So, that would be my other, my backup plan. Yeah, that's fair yeah. enough. Well, thanks very much, Ashley. Um, hopefully, yeah, thank you. Coming on and chatting to us about your work, um, and thanks. To, to us hosts. Thanks, John, for <laughs> up today. Um, I never said thank you to you guys. I've just realized. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, we've been the Cosmic Cast from the Earth and Solar System team at the University of Manchester. And if you're looking for more Earth and Planetary Science content, uh, all our links will be in the description box. And I think below, just here, yeah. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have a blog as well. Uh, so thank you very much for listening everyone thanks yeah, again to Ashley yeah thank you Ashley no thank you very much, very much. much. and to all our listeners see you next week bye <laughs>